This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Kim Chandler stepped outside the nail salon for some air. Her next client was due any minute and she wanted to have a quick smoke. Kim had just lit her cigarette when she saw a car pulling in front of the salon. She started to put it out but stopped when she saw it wasn't her next customer. It was another frequent client, Celeste Beard. Kim rolled her eyes. She didn't want to talk to Celeste. Every time she gave the woman a manicure, Celeste spent the whole time wailing about her husband. Kim started to turn back inside when she saw Celeste leap out of the car and sprint toward her. The hairs on the back of Kim's neck stood up when she saw Celeste's expression. Her face was red and her teeth were bared. She was seething with hatred. And then Kim noticed the knife clutched in Celeste's hand. Questions flooded Kim's mind, but she didn't stick around to ask any of them. Instead, she ran. Celeste screamed and chased after her, knife raised. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we explored the relationship between 31-year-old Celeste Johnson and 70-year-old Texas millionaire Stephen Beard. Celeste's family described her as a troubled woman who manipulated those around her to get her way. She was frequently hospitalized for histrionic behavior and threats of suicide. During one hospital stay in 1999, Celeste grew close to another patient, 41-year-old Tracy Tarleton. Soon, the two women began an intimate relationship. By the time they were released from the hospital, 
Celeste had convinced Tracy that she was in love with her and that her husband Steve was the only thing that stood in the way of their happiness. This week, we'll see how Celeste and Tracy's relationship led to Steve's death, as well as the horrifying aftermath of their crime. In September of 1999, 74-year-old Stephen Beard planned a romantic trip to Europe to celebrate his wife's release from the hospital. He booked luxury hotels, secured chauffeurs, and purchased $10,000 in traveler's checks. He saw the vacation as a last chance to reconnect with Celeste and save their marriage after several rocky years together. But 36-year-old Celeste wasn't looking forward to going away. In fact, she was dreading the trip. She had no desire to be alone with Steve. She frequently ranted about how much she hated her husband to her girlfriend, Tracy. Celeste told Tracy that Steve was overweight, suffered from high blood pressure, sleep apnea, and asthma, and exhibited signs of heart disease. She hoped he would drop dead before their departure date. According to Tracy, Celeste was even willing to make his health problems worse. For years, she drugged his food with ground-up sleeping pills to make him pass out early in the night. With the European vacation on the horizon, she started to consider lacing his food with something deadlier. To that end, Celeste asked Tracy to order a copy of The Poisoner's Handbook from the bookstore she worked at in Austin. Celeste used the book to figure out the recipe for botulinum, a bacteria-produced toxin. When ingested, it can cause botulism, a potentially fatal illness. Celeste asked Tracy to brew the toxin, which she planned to mix into Steve's food. Tracy did what Celeste asked, mixing rancid meat, corn, and dirt in a jar, then flooding it with water and leaving it out in the Texas sun. She was uncomfortable with the thought of murder, but she rationalized her actions by convincing herself she wouldn't be directly involved in the murder. Celeste would be the one feeding Steve the toxin. Besides, if Steve died, then Tracy and Celeste could be together. But Tracy's attempts to produce botulism were unsuccessful. Celeste tried to poison Steve with a mixture and it had no effect. By the middle of September, Celeste was desperate. She continued to add sleeping pills to Steve's food and replace his vodka with strong Everclear several nights a week, hoping that the combination would eventually prove fatal. On September 12, 1999, Celeste thought her plan might have worked. That evening, she discovered Steve passed out on the kitchen floor, unresponsive but still breathing. She called Tracy and told her to come over immediately. When she arrived at the Beard's home, Celeste allegedly handed her a plastic bag and a towel. She urged Tracy to put the bag over Steve's head and wrap the towel around his throat to suffocate him. Tracy started to obey, but stopped when Steve suddenly stirred. After seeing him move, Tracy lost her nerve. She told Celeste she couldn't do it. Celeste said that she couldn't go through with it either. They removed the bag and called for an ambulance. At the hospital, Steve's blood alcohol content measured at 0.168, indicating acute intoxication. When Steve recovered, a hospital social worker discussed his drinking habits. Steve told her that he drank what his wife poured him, adding that Celeste was drinking a little more than usual, so he was drinking more to keep her company. The social worker concluded that Steve was in denial about a drinking problem. Two days later, he was discharged. But the day afterward, he passed out at the breakfast table and was again rushed to the ER. Celeste was hopeful he was dead, but he recovered the next day. Celeste was infuriated. Steve's health was deteriorating, but not quickly enough. 
On September 29th, Celeste visited Tracy and asked about a shotgun she owned. The weapon was a present from Tracy's father. He often took her and her brothers hunting when they were children. Celeste then asked Tracy, point blank, if she would shoot Steve for her. She claimed that Steve was verbally abusive, that he ridiculed and belittled her. She pleaded with Tracy, insisting that Steve had to die. At first, Tracy balked at the idea, but then Celeste began to sob. She said that if Tracy wouldn't shoot Steve, then she should hand her gun over to Celeste so that she could use it on herself. At least if she were dead, she would never have to see Steve again. Her suicidal talk terrified Tracy, who watched helplessly as the love of her life wept in front of her. As Celeste paced around the room, she looked small to Tracy, hollow and vulnerable, like a frightened child. It made Tracy want to get up and wrap her arms around her, to guard her and shelter her. She thought back on her childhood, on all the times she faced her mother's abuse. Nobody, not her father nor her brothers, had ever stood up to protect her. She had endured the torment alone and had barely gotten out alive. Now, Celeste was facing her own monster, and there was nobody to protect her. Tracy felt tears fill her eyes as she made a decision. She wouldn't let Celeste suffer. She would do everything she could to save Celeste's life, even if it meant ending Steve's. Eventually, Tracy agreed to kill Steve for Celeste. She later said, I always felt unnecessary. I thought finally I'd found something I was necessary for. I had a purpose. I had to kill Steve to save Celeste's life. Before I continue with Tracy's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Tracy's desperate rationalization of Steve's murder is consistent with what psychologist Albert Bandura has described as moral disengagement, which can explain people's willingness to engage in harmful behavior. In a 1999 paper, Bandura wrote, People do not ordinarily engage in harmful conduct until they have justified to themselves the morality of their actions. In this process of moral justification, Detrimental conduct is made personally and socially acceptable by portraying it as serving socially worthy or moral purposes. For Tracy, saving Celeste was paramount and justified any harm to Steve. Once Tracy agreed, Celeste began to plot out the details of the murder. First, she had to figure out how to handle her 18-year-old twin daughters, Jennifer and Christina, who still lived at home. She suggested Jennifer spend the upcoming weekend at the family's lake house with friends. However, she asked Christina to remain home. Of the two girls, Christina was the one who doted on her mother the most. Unlike Jennifer, she rarely rebelled. She almost always did what Celeste wanted, and Celeste wanted her close in case she needed any help. Friday afternoon, October 1st, Celeste waited until the house was empty and then invited Tracy over. There, she took Tracy step-by-step step through her plan. She showed Tracy where to park her car so it would be hidden by trees. Then she pointed out the path leading to a patio along the side of the house and the French doors opening into the master bedroom. After completing the walkthrough, Tracy left, agreeing to return after Steve was asleep. That night, Steve went to bed around 9.30 p.m. At about 10, Celeste left and drove up to the lake house, where Jennifer was spending the night with her friends. She brought Steve's dog, Megan, with her, and told Jennifer that she wanted the dog to stay with them. She claimed Steve was drunk and that the dog was irritating him. 
Jennifer later said the excuse was odd, as the dog rarely left Steve's side. But in the moment, she didn't question it. Celeste didn't immediately drive home afterward. Instead, she drove to Tracy's house. She wanted to confirm one last time that Tracy was willing to go through with the murder. Tracy anxiously promised that she'd do it. At last, Celeste returned home, where she found Steve and Christina sound asleep. She slipped into Christina's bedroom. She wanted to be as far from Steve as possible, and she often slept in Christina's room anyway, as the noise from Steve's sleep apnea machine bothered her. For hours, she sat up and listened carefully for the sound of Tracy's arrival. Around 2 a.m., she finally heard Tracy's car pull up to the house. Once Tracy had arrived, she followed the path Celeste had laid out for her, all the way to the master bedroom. She opened the doors to find Steve sleeping in bed, all alone. Tracy later recalled thinking, this is the only answer. He'll never let her go. I have to do it, I promised. She pointed the shotgun at Steve's stomach and pulled the trigger. Coming up, Steve fights for his life as Celeste tries to avoid police suspicion. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of October 2nd, 1999, 42-year-old Tracy Tarleton entered the home of 74-year-old Steve Beard. While Steve slept, Tracy shot him in the stomach. Tracy heard Steve groan, but she didn't stay to watch what happened to him. She hurried out the patio door, raced to her car, and drove away. Steve woke up in agony. He reached for the panic button next to the bed, but when he pushed it, nothing happened. Celeste hadn't set the security system's alarm. Steve grabbed the phone on the nightstand and called 911. He asked the dispatcher to send an ambulance, rattling off his address. When the operator asked him what happened, he responded, my guts blew out of my stomach. Police raced to the house. Officers knocked at the front door, but nobody responded. Then they went around the side of the house and entered the bedroom through the patio door. There they found Steve, covered in blood. At first, officers thought he might have recently had surgery and his stitches had opened, but then they found a shotgun shell on the floor. The commotion woke up Christina, who sat up to find Celeste alert, standing by the door of her bedroom. Her mother whispered that someone was in the house she told Christina to see what was happening. Christina rushed into the next room and called 911, who told her that the intruders were actually the police and EMTs. They encountered police officers emerging from the master bedroom, who informed them that Steve was in bad shape. They were waiting for a medical helicopter to arrive to transport him to the hospital. Celeste began to sob. Christina hugged her, trying to calm her down. <laughs> Medics carried Steve out of the house on a gurney and rushed him to the hospital. He was immediately taken into surgery. Christina and Celeste sat in the waiting room, calling family and friends to give them the news about Steve's shooting. Christina called her sister Jennifer at the lake house and Jennifer hurried to the hospital along with her friends. While Christina and Celeste waited for Steve to get out of surgery, a police officer swabbed their hands to test for gunpowder residue. 
It was a routine procedure, but Celeste seemed angry that the police even considered her a potential suspect. She told them she had been nowhere near the master bedroom at the time of the shooting. She also claimed to have no idea who could have shot Steve, but then suggested it might have been a robbery gone bad. Later, when police stepped away, Celeste turned to her daughter and said, The police are going to ask who could have done this. No matter what, don't mention Tracy's name. Christina didn't dare question her mother, but when her boyfriend Justin arrived at the hospital to keep her company, Christina told him what Celeste had said. Christina was fiercely loyal to her mother, both out of love and out of fear of her volatile temper. But Justin felt none of that duty to Celeste. When police sergeant Paul Knight questioned Justin, he suggested Knight speak with a woman named Tracy Tarleton. When Jennifer and her friends arrived at the hospital, Jennifer's boyfriend Christopher also mentioned Tracy, even saying the woman was in love with Celeste. Sergeant Knight followed up on the teenager's suspicions. He ran a search on Tracy, discovering several DWIs on her record. Early that Saturday morning, he and Detective Rick Wines paid Tracy a visit at home. Tracy opened the front door to find two police officers standing on her front porch. Her heart sank. She felt no surprise, only dismay. As the officers introduced themselves, Tracy tried to calm her breathing. She was sure they could hear her heart pounding in her chest. She worried that they could tell, just by the look in her eyes, that she was guilty. She forced herself to stop and take a breath. When she let the officers in, they spoke lightly, casually, like they were trying to put her at ease or get her to let down her guard. Tracy wouldn't fall for it. As they questioned her, she thought carefully before each answer, making certain she didn't reveal anything suspicious. She told them that she knew Celeste, but they were just friends. She admitted that she knew Steve, but not well. Then, they asked about her gun. When Tracy showed the officers her shotgun, Detective Wines noted that it had been cleaned recently. He could still smell the cleaning fluid. Tracy told them she had been shooting skeet a few nights earlier. Officers asked to confiscate the weapon so they could test it. Then they asked if Tracy would come to the sheriff's department for further questioning. Tracy agreed. There, after a few hours of questioning, she admitted that she and Celeste had been romantically involved but she insisted that she had nothing to do with Steve's shooting. In less than a week, however, ballistics testing confirmed that the shotgun shell from the floor of Steve Beard's bedroom matched Tracy Tarleton's weapon. Officers arrested Tracy, charging her with aggravated assault and injury to the elderly. She was released on a $25,000 bond. After Tracy got out on bail, the two women found time to see each other two to three times a week. At these meetings, Celeste bitterly complained to Tracy about Steve. She was shocked and angry that he had survived the shooting. Celeste told Tracy that she dreaded the day Steve would be released from the hospital. She still hoped he might die from his injuries, but Tracy prayed he would live. If not, she could be charged with murder. At the hospital, Steve remained in the ICU following surgery. While he was incapacitated, Celeste decided it was time for her to take control of his bank accounts. She contacted Steve's attorney, but he refused to give Celeste full access to the finances. Instead, he allowed her an allowance for household spending. Celeste wasted no time finding ways to spend thousands of dollars on what she said were necessary updates and improvements to her home. Over the next two months, she spent over $500,000 of Steve's money. Steve was dimly aware of her spending, but was too focused on his health to stop her. 
he figured he would address their issues once he was better. But his recovery came slowly. The shooting had weakened his immune system and he was highly vulnerable to infection. He was surprised when the police arrested Tracy, but despite Celeste and Tracy's close relationship, he didn't seem to suspect his wife's involvement in the attack. Celeste's outrage was convincing. She told him that she hated Tracy for what she had done. Steve didn't realize that Celeste and Tracy were continuing to meet in secret all the while. As Steve gradually improved, Celeste's mental health declined. She was infuriated to be the subject of gossip and rumors around Austin. When a local newspaper ran a story, raising questions about the nature of Celeste's relationship with Tracy, Celeste called the editor-in-chief to complain. When call-in radio shows discussed the case on air, Celeste telephoned the DJs to defend herself. She seemed more concerned with salvaging her reputation than with helping Steve get better. Her limited ability to empathize with Steve's distress was typical for someone with narcissistic tendencies. Studies indicate that between 16 and 39% of patients diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, such as Celeste, also show symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders states that narcissists have an impaired ability to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. It further states that narcissists are excessively attuned to the reaction of others, but only if perceived as relevant to self. After plotting Steve's death, Celeste could only see how the botched murder attempt negatively affected her. Stuck in a hospital bed, Steve sometimes felt abandoned by Celeste and their relationship suffered. Though Celeste made regular visits to Steve at the hospital, the two frequently argued about her spending habits or about her neglecting him. Around Christmas time, nearly three months following the shooting, Celeste returned home after a screaming match in Steve's hospital room. She picked a fight with Christina, culminating in Celeste snatching a picture frame and throwing it against the wall. She then took a piece of broken glass from the frame and held it to her wrist. Christina contacted police who transported Celeste to a psychiatric hospital for an overnight stay. Steve called Christina to comfort her after the episode, telling her, she's sick, she doesn't mean these things. As he had throughout their marriage, Steve clung to the belief that somehow things would eventually settle down and return to normal, perhaps when he was out of the hospital and could keep a closer eye on Celeste. By mid-January of 2000, Steve's condition had improved enough for him to be discharged. Celeste told his doctors that she was against his release, claiming that he wasn't ready, but Steve wanted to go home. He spent just one night in his own bed before Celeste brought him back to the hospital. She said he was acting confused and complaining of chest pains. Doctors examined Steve and found that he was suffering from a yeast infection. They admitted him to the hospital despite his protest that he was getting better. His first night back in the hospital, Steve seemed alert, but after a few days, his health took a sharp decline. On January 22nd, 75-year-old Steve Beard died suddenly of pulmonary embolism. The county medical examiner ruled that the blood clot was a complication from his gunshot wound, so he listed the cause of death as murder. After Steve's death, Celeste's first phone call wasn't to his three children, it was to his banker. She left him a message telling him that Steve was dead. She demanded access to his bank accounts. But Celeste soon discovered that her financial situation was not as straightforward as she'd hoped it would be. She was not entitled to inherit Steve's fortune outright. Steve's will only allowed for her to receive a monthly stipend dispensed from a trust fund. She was advised that she could expect an allowance of $15,000 per month, 
For Celeste, this was not enough. She tried several times to persuade the bank officials operating the trust to give her more money. At one point, she even claimed that she had breast cancer and needed to pay for treatment. When this didn't convince the trust administrators, Celeste screamed at them, promising to cut off her breast and mail it to them as payback. Celeste became increasingly unhinged as time went on and the bank continued to refuse to pay more money. In mid-February of 2000, a few weeks after Steve's death, Celeste sat her twin daughters down and asked if they'd make a suicide pact with her if things got too difficult. In previous years, Celeste had frequently expressed suicidal ideation. Her behavior was not unsurprising given her diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. One 2008 study led by psychiatrist Juveria Zahair, Paul S. Links, and Eleanor Liu found that between 60 and 78% of borderline personality disorder patients have shown suicidal behaviors. However, while Celeste frequently spoke of harming herself, this was the first time she brought up the idea of killing her daughters. Terrified, the girls changed the subject. The escalation may have been brought on by the intense stress Celeste was under. Money wasn't the only thing contributing to her worries. She was obsessed with what now had become a murder investigation into Steve's death. Tracy still faced charges for aggravated assault, but had not yet been charged with murder. Her attorney was working with prosecutors in hopes of arranging some kind of deal. Tracy had told him about Celeste's involvement in the murder, and her lawyer suggested that she might testify against Celeste in exchange for a lesser charge. Despite his negotiations, Tracy remained adamant that she would not turn on Celeste. But still, Celeste worried. On February 11th, 2000, Two days before Celeste celebrated her 37th birthday and desperate to get away from Austin, she approached Donna Goodson, a friend who worked as a receptionist at the nail salon Celeste frequented. On a whim, Celeste invited Donna on a trip to the Houston rodeo. The women spent the night drinking and partying. The next day, instead of returning home, they drove east to Lake Charles, Louisiana to go gambling. On the drive over, Celeste confided in Donna that she was terrified the police considered her a suspect in her husband's death. She lived in constant fear about what Tracy might reveal to the investigators. She remarked that it would be easier if Tracy were gone. She openly wondered how much it might cost to get rid of her. Donna knew Celeste was wealthy and saw a way to make some money out of her desperation. She told Celeste that she knew a hitman named Modesto who worked for the Mexican mafia. For $500, he could get rid of Tracy. The hitman didn't exist. Donna had made him up. But later that night, Celeste stopped at an ATM and took out $500, handing it over to Donna to pay Modesto. Donna pocketed the money. The woman returned to Austin on February 14th. Celeste insisted on driving past Tracy's house, pointing it out to Donna so she could relay the address to Modesto. She seemed relieved that the problem would soon be taken care of. But a few days later, Celeste called Donna frantic and manic. She said she knew people were gossiping about her at the nail salon where Donna worked. She suspected her nail technician, Kim Chandler, was talking behind her back, accusing her of being involved in Steve's murder. She asked Donna to give her a ride to the salon and called Christina, asking her 19-year-old daughter to meet her there. Christina expected an angry screaming match, Celeste's usual theatrics. But when Donna and Celeste arrived and Celeste saw Kim standing outside in the parking lot smoking a cigarette, she pulled a butcher knife out of her purse and ran to confront the nail technician. Terrified, Kim fled. Christina and Donna managed to grab Celeste and tried to pull the knife out of her hands. 
but before they could get the knife away, Celeste sliced Christina across the knee and stabbed herself in the forearm. Christina took her mother to the emergency room, where Celeste claimed the whole thing had been an accident. Following this incident, Celeste's attorney suggested she check into Timberlawn Psychiatric Hospital in Dallas, where she and Tracy had been roommates the previous year. Celeste agreed to seek treatment, but before leaving, she asked Donna again about the contract on Tracy's life. Donna told her that Modesto had pulled out, but she knew another hitman that could complete the job. This one would require a $10,000 payment. Celeste wrote Donna a check and told her that she expected the job to be done by the time she returned from Timberlawn. She went to Dallas feeling hopeful. She believed that once Tracy was dead, the police would have no case against her. It didn't occur to Celeste that Tracy wasn't the only person who posed a threat. Her daughters were growing increasingly suspicious of her erratic behavior. And after months of silence, they were finally ready to speak up. Up next, Celeste rages against Jennifer and Christina as they attempt to take a stand against their mother. Now, back to the story. In late March of 2000, 37-year-old Celeste Beard checked herself into a psychiatric hospital in Dallas. She was under an enormous amount of stress terrified that she might be implicated in the murder of her husband, Steve. She had good reason to be worried. She had actively planned Steve's shooting with her lover, 42-year-old Tracy Tarleton. After the murder, Tracy and Celeste continued to stay in touch through phone calls and occasional meetings. When they spoke, Tracy vowed never to turn on Celeste. She told her lawyer, I pulled the trigger and I'm taking the fall. I don't want Celeste involved. Nevertheless, Celeste didn't trust Tracy's loyalty. In fact, she had talked to her friend Donna Goodson about hiring a hitman to kill Tracy. Donna didn't actually hire anybody. She just pocketed Celeste's money and pretended to find someone for the job, a Mexican mafia man named Modesto. Celeste's daughter, Christina, was perplexed by her mother's sudden close friendship with Donna. She wondered why Celeste was suddenly writing Donna checks for thousands of dollars. For years, Steve had been there to try to regulate Celeste's excessive spending. With him gone, Christina felt it was now her responsibility to get things under control. While Celeste was in the psychiatric hospital, she and Christina exchanged several heated phone calls. She wanted answers about Celeste's payments to Donna, but Celeste refused to give them. When Christina threatened to talk to Donna herself, Celeste worried her murder-for-hire plot would unravel. She checked out of the hospital, asking her other daughter, Jennifer, to pick her up and drive her back to Austin. On the drive, Jennifer recalled her mother saying, I am so angry, I could physically kill Christina. Jennifer was terrified that Celeste meant it. Once she dropped Celeste at home, she warned Christina to stay away. The 19-year-old twins stayed with their boyfriend's families while they discussed breaking ties with their mother. It was a difficult decision. Psychiatrist Marcia Sirota has noted that children typically blame themselves for what goes wrong in the parent-child relationship. Rather than holding our parents accountable for how they treat us, we take responsibility for what happened and then try to change ourselves in order to finally win the love they've been withholding. Jennifer and Christina had spent years trying to please Celeste. They did almost everything she asked. Christina later said, I'm not strong enough to say no to her. But by the spring of 2000, they had reached a breaking point. They finally recognized that Celeste was a danger to them. When the twins didn't return home, 
Celeste called Jennifer and Christina repeatedly. Over the next few days, she screamed at them over the phone and left enraged voicemails. Jennifer later called her mother's behavior violent and scary. The girls were terrified for their safety. Jennifer's boyfriend, Christopher, began carrying a knife with him at all times for protection. Christina started recording all the phone conversations she had with her mother. She wanted to have evidence of her mother's abuse. In one conversation, Celeste chastised Christina for prying into her relationship with Donna. Christina couldn't understand why this made her mother so upset until Celeste revealed the reason she wrote Donna a check. She told Christina, I hired a hitman to kill Tracy. The words terrified Christina. If Celeste could turn on Tracy, who loved her unconditionally, she could turn on any of them. After that, Christina and Jennifer stopped responding to their mother's calls and cut off all contact. They couldn't protect Celeste any longer. On April 7, 2000, they met with the district attorney and told him that they feared their mother wanted them dead. They also believed she was involved in Steve Beard's murder and that she was trying to cover up her involvement by silencing Tracy Tarleton. The attorney listened to their story. He could see that the twins were terrified of their mother, but he worried that the evidence against Celeste was circumstantial. He couldn't build a case on the girl's testimony alone. He needed Tracy to confirm their story, and Tracy still refused to talk. The prosecutor sent her a message through her lawyer, warning her that Celeste wanted to have her killed. When Tracy called Celeste and asked about the death threat, Celeste told her that the twins were lying to scare her. She said they were angry at Tracy for killing their adoptive father. Tracy believed her. She remained committed to protecting Celeste, even when it became clear that Celeste wanted nothing more to do with her. In Celeste's mind, it was somehow Tracy's fault that she had become estranged from her daughters. She had ruined her life. Tracy wanted to comfort Celeste. In mid-June, she even drove to her house and attempted to talk, but Celeste ordered her to leave. She told Tracy that she didn't want to see her anymore. Without Tracy, Celeste tried to distract herself. Late that spring, she met a bartender named Spencer Cole Johnson. Within a few months, they were married. But Celeste could barely celebrate the new union. She was still reeling from losing contact with her daughters. That summer, Christina and Jennifer filed a restraining order against their mother. On June 23, 2000, a local Austin newspaper reported on the court hearing. The article included the detail that the girls had obtained an audio recording of Celeste admitting that she had hired a hitman to kill Tracy. When Tracy read the article, she was devastated by Celeste's betrayal. Later that day, she paged her psychiatrist. When her psychiatrist called Tracy back and got no response, she asked the police to do a welfare check. They discovered Tracy, unconscious, having attempted to end her own life. She was brought to the hospital to have her stomach pumped. Three days later, she was transferred to St. David's Pavilion, a psychiatric hospital. Tracy curled up in her hospital bed, feeling numb. It was surreal being back in this hospital, where she had first met Celeste over a year and a half ago. Tracy recalled those fleeting moments of intimacy, the late night conversations, the feeling that she was finally connecting with someone. But now she wondered whether it was all in her head. Perhaps she had never really known Celeste. Maybe everything Celeste said was a lie. Tracy burrowed her face into her pillow as her brain pushed against the thought. She didn't want to let it in. 
Because if Celeste really was lying about everything, perhaps she was lying about Steve as well. Maybe he hadn't been a horrible, abusive monster. Maybe Tracy hadn't really saved Celeste. Maybe she had killed a man for nothing. By fall of 2000, prosecutors were no closer to bringing a case against Celeste Beard. Steve Beard's adult children filed a civil wrongful death case against her, but the judge found that there was insufficient evidence. Following the loss of the civil case, criminal prosecutors knew that they would be unlikely to succeed in a murder trial against Celeste. Instead, they proceeded with their charges against Tracy Tarleton. In February of 2001, a grand jury indicted Tracy on murder charges. She was taken into custody a week later. As she sat in jail awaiting trial, Tracy grew bitter. She later said, I realized Celeste had played me. All along for her, it was a game. For over a year, she had resolved to protect Celeste from the consequences of their crime, and Celeste had abandoned her. Now, Tracy's resolve was weakening. As Tracy's trial date approached, she told her lawyers that she was ready to speak to prosecutors about Celeste Beard. She met with them for more than four hours, sharing every detail of her relationship with Celeste and the plan they made to kill Stephen Beard. She agreed to take a polygraph test the following day. Tracy passed the test and pled guilty to murder, accepting a 20-year prison sentence in exchange for her testimony against Celeste. On March 28, 2002, Celeste Beard got in her car, intending to pick up her dogs from the groomers. As she pulled away from her house, she noticed a squad car behind her. Suddenly, two more appeared. She was surrounded. Police officers ordered her out of her car and placed her under arrest for murder. The trial was set for February 3rd, 2003. Witnesses included Celeste's daughters, their boyfriends, Celeste's therapist, and Tracy Tarleton. Prosecutors were worried about the credibility of their key witness. Given Tracy's history of mental illness and her own role in Steve's murder, they weren't sure whether the jury would believe her story. But Tracy was composed and convincing on the stand. A juror later said, without Tracy's testimony, there is no way you could convict Celeste. Everything rose and fell on Tracy Tarleton. On Thursday, March 19th, after three days of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Celeste guilty of murder. She was sentenced to the maximum penalty of life in prison. Both Tracy and Celeste were transferred to separate units at the Gatesville Correctional Facility in Texas. After the trial, Celeste expressed fury about her conviction. It may be that she truly believed in her own innocence, despite evidence to the contrary. Psychotherapist Aaron Leonard said, Narcissists live and die by their own version of the truth, Extreme cognitive distortions and rigid unconscious defense mechanisms change a person's perception of an experience. Paramount distortions and defenses are typically employed by a person with narcissistic personality disorder. Both alter reality in order to make it more palpable for a fragile ego. In a 2004 interview, Celeste railed against her attorneys, her daughters, and Tracy, at times suggesting that all three work together to take her down. Tracy didn't seem to share Celeste's anger. She remained more focused on atoning for her past, saying, I can't change this. I did a horrible thing. I'm not angry about being in prison. I understand why I'm here. I walked into Steve Beard's bedroom and shot him in his sleep. Tracy served 10 years of her prison sentence before she was paroled in 2011. Upon release, she said, 
I don't wake up one single day without feeling ashamed for what I did. In the last decade, Celeste has stayed in the public eye, publishing a book in which she criticized the trial that found her guilty. As recently as 2019, Celeste continued to maintain her innocence, blaming Tracy Tarleton for her imprisonment. That year, she was interviewed as a part of a documentary on female criminals produced by the UK's Channel 4 public television network. In her interview, Celeste said, It's just crazy. How does she walk around and function knowing her lies got me put in here for life? I wish she would tell the truth. I wish she would have a conscience. That's why I think she got breast cancer. I feel like that was her karma. Currently, Celeste's angry tirades are her only recourse against her conviction. She's not eligible for parole until 2042 and remains in prison with little hope for freedom. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>